Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Business of Sports. The cold hard truth about the Olympic journey is not really been financially incentivized in the same way that many other professional sports are. The business of basketball involves CBA, global, our licensing arm, Think 450. All of those things will make up what that looks like. Money in sports is one of the reasons why I enjoy being on Monday Night Countdown. We talk about some of the more interesting aspects of business of sports. When you're talking sports, discipline is the bridge from being good to other being great at whatever it is that you're trying to be or accomplish at your profession. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports show where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. I'm Michael Barr. I'm Scarlett Fu. And I'm Mike Lynch. Coming up today, we're off to the Kentucky Derby. Joining us is Bill Carstangen, Chief Executive Officer of Churchill Downs. And stick around because later on the show, we speak with Dallas Mavericks Chief Executive Officer Cynthia Marshall. As the Mavericks face the Phoenix Suns in the NBA Western Conference semifinal, straight ahead on the Bloomberg Business of Sports Show. But first, let's look at some of the top stories of the week. And let's begin with a woo. I wish you guys could have heard the microphones that were going before we started the show. Scarlett, I've never seen her nose flare like that in a long time. Uh, let's let's just say sports are colliding. Uh, they're colliding with the shipping industry in the battle over the proposed Oakland A's ballpark. Now, let's be honest, Scarlett, the, the A's ballpark uh, – Let's say it's a, a bit used. I'll put it that Dilapidated? way. Dilapidated? Yeah, yeah, you can say that. <laughs> they want a new stadium like every team that plays in an old stadium that has not, you know, doesn't have the latest uh, doodads and fancy amenities that the modern sports fan has come to expect. And like internet. <laughs> like internet, yeah. Or, I mean, I'm, I have not been to the ballpark there in a long time, um, years, but I'm willing to bet it's it's looking kind of shabby. And the team obviously wants a new stadium. And the question is whether they get a new stadium in Oakland or whether they make good on their threat to leave the state. There's now a showdown uh, between the A's and also the shipping industry, specifically a bunch of shipping companies that are opposed to the A's plans to build a new 34,000-seat stadium and hotel and residential development because, of course, it's got to be part and parcel with something bigger, right? A commercial mixed-use space that would eat up uh, some industrial land at the Port of Oakland. Uh, the shipping companies say this would be misguided. It would eat up space um, at the container port for imports. And we know what's going on with container ports right now. They're having trouble clearing everything. There's supply chain issues. There's a lot of backup. So they are kind of holding that over everyone's head, saying this would just exacerbate it. 
Well, what's the answer, Lynchy? Do the shipping magnets tell the Oakland A's, take your bat and ball and get out? <laughs> well, right now, Dave Caval of the A's wants to work out a deal, but he needs a deal in place by July. Obviously, so there's the bigger, a fun timeline in place too. There is, and you know, he, all he has to do is look across the bay where the Giants built their stadium, and it's in the exact same. It was a bunch of it was a shipping port. Uh, they, they, he went up. They went up against the same resistance, and it's been a, just it revitalized the whole area. Same thing happened in Baltimore. Just an old factory out in right field in Camden Yards. They built this ballpark there. It revitalized the whole area. Michael, you've seen what, what's happened in the city of Detroit mm-hmm. when the Tigers built their stadium down there. Washington, D.C. did the same thing. I think they have a chance here. I think it, it's a great plan. It's going to be an intimate stadium, about 34,000 people. It's near downtown. They'll get a lot of foot traffic. And it's, ironically, the port of Oakland is in favor of it, and they're going against the shipping industry. The port is okay with the new stadium. The shipping companies don't want the new stadium. That's I weird, isn't it? I just don't see how it's it's going to uh, retard the growth of the shipping industry down there. There's this th- this area that they're talking about down there hasn't been used for close to a decade. Well, it, the key, I think, to any sports complex, and is what Detroit did, You've got uh, Comerica Park, where the Tigers play, and right next door is Ford Field, where the Detroit Lions play, and a short distance from there is Little Caesars, where the Red Wings play. So, and and uh, also the Pistons, uh, they're they're right there too. So everything is in that complex there, where before in the past you had the Pistons, they were out in Auburn Hills, and then the Tigers, they were on Michigan and Trumbull. So it, everything was separate. But the complex today in Detroit is everything's together, and it's it's really revitalized the city. Yeah, I, I, we've, there's, there are just so many examples which we just ran down. And hanging over this whole decision coming up in July is the city of Las Vegas. They want a Major League Baseball team. They want one desperately, and they have made no secret at all that they would Hold love on. to have— Hold on. Go ahead. Okay, Scarlett, go ahead. Playing baseball in Las Vegas? Mm -hmm. Would you want to watch a baseball game in Las Vegas? I mean, under the hot sun? Well, you know, they built a new stadium in Arlington, Texas, and it's indoors, uh, Global Life Stadium. It's because the temperature in Texas is so uh, very hot during uh, during the summer. It'll be worse in Vegas. Well, they have one in Miami with a retractable roof, and they have one in Tampa, which, which is a dome. And Vegas, it would have to be an indoor stadium, absolutely. But the financial benefits for the Oakland A's to move to, uh, to move to Las Vegas may be an offer they just simply cannot refuse. The environmental price tag of that stadium will, will be pretty hefty, too. No, don't worry about Las Vegas. It's a dry heat. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Michael Barr, famous last words. Um, wait, wait. Getting back to this, big, uh, this Oakland A's new stadium that the Port of Oakland is okay with, who's paying for that, by the way? Because... You know, if they look across the bay to look at the San Francisco Giants, they got zero dollars in public money to build their stadium. That's a very good question. Uh, but we just recently came off the story where uh, Buffalo, uh, the NFL team, uh, <laughs> they they got a nice little deal from uh, the state, Governor Hochul, to, to kick <laughs> in for the stadium. Not everybody was on board with that. Uh, so I I don't know if you're going to put public dollars now if the A's, one, stay in Oakland and build a new facility, or where they move, they're going to, are they going to build a new facility, and, and will there be taxpayer dollars? So, we'll see. 
anyway. Uh, my this, favorite part, by the way, my favorite yeah. detail here in this whole story is about how the um, shipping companies are worried that there will be tens of thousands of fans who may descend on the area on game days, disrupting disrupting traffic, trucks and trains tens moving around the thousands. port. <laughs> yes. That's what I was wondering, too. Are there tens of thousands of A fans that, that show up every game? Last year, they averaged 8,700 per game. This year, so that was a just no. They have have had a couple of games where they've had 3,000 people. However, they feel that because there's very little public transportation, you have to drive a car out to this, they used to call it the Oakland Mausoleum. This is California. You drive a car everywhere (laughs) anyway. (laughs) You make good points, Scarlett. But however, they think that this will change everything with foot traffic in this new area downtown. Okay, yeah, this sounds great on a PowerPoint, but come on. (laughs) Like when they play interleague games, yeah against the Giants, then yeah, maybe you'll get tens of thousands of fans. But, you know, if the A's are just playing the A's versus Tampa, probably mm-hmm. going to get 3,000 fans. Correct. But <laughs> they may get 25,000 if they're downtown in a new stadium mm. on the water, just like the Giants did. When the Giants were out at Candlestick, I mean, it was brutally cold out there, and they had horrible attendance. They built this downtown stadium, and it was, you know, hitting home runs into the bay, McCovey Cove. Um, it was just, it was a destination for people that, that were going out to Northern California to go see the new Giants ballpark. Oakland days are thinking the same, or hoping the same thing would happen for them. <laughs> I forgot they called it the mausoleum. That was right. <laughs> that Oakland brought back Zell. very funny memories. I'm sorry. Remember how it goes? Oakland's Alameda. <laughs> oh, man. Is there a federal solution for NIL legislation? Period. That that I guess that's the big question. The SEC's Greg Sankey. Uh, and the Pac-12's George. Who we got to talk to, by the way. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, we did. And they're, they're going to head to Washington. So uh, it, let's put it this way. Name, image, and likeness legislation has changed the whole face of college athletics. Scarlett, is there a need for a federal solution? Apparently, the SEC commissioner thinks so, and other leaders in college athletics feel that there is. I want to get more details. I, I, I want to understand it specifically which issues require federal legislation when it comes to name, image, and likeness. Because clearly there is a lot of discussion on what happens when these student athletes become kind of like employees. But what are the specific scenarios that they're worried about here? Well, they're, they're worried about that. There's this new term that has popped up. It's called collectives. And it basically is just a kitty or it's a fund that certain schools are are funding to retain current players so they don't transfer, more importantly, entice high school recruits and maybe poach from other schools as well. Now, some of them have millions of dollars. Eric Dickerson has put a million dollars himself into a fund for Southern Methodist University to, to, to achieve those three goals, retain current players, entice high school players, and poach others. One of the problems is, is remember when Nick Saban came out and said, well, our quarterback just got a $900,000 deal with, uh, you know, Michael Barr's Chevrolet. <laughs> and um, so automatically I said, why would he say that? And I said, well, obviously the reason is it's a great recruiting tool. So they want to be able to ban schools from using it as a recruiting tool. Um, the University of Texas has a fund called Burnt, B-U-R-N-T, ends. So all the tight ends 
if there's three of them on the team, they split $70,000 a year because some alumni used to be a tight end. Really? And, mm-hmm. yeah, he donates seventy. So each one of those guys, was, you know, if it's three guys, they 70000 three ways. And you can not even step on the field and play a game, but you're going to get part of that money. So they want to regulate this and may- maybe put a ca- – I don't know if they can put a cap on the, on the amount of money that players are, are getting, but – it used to be illegal for donors. Remember, we would watch all these movies, you know, about um, there was one with uh, Michael, um, uh, Anthony Michael Hall being recruited by Texas State and somebody else. And they had, you know, shiny leather boots mm-hmm. and, you know, all kinds of cash coming in. And they want to, they want to eliminate all of that. Uh, so it's like going back to the, to the good old days when people were doing things under the table. Now they can do them on top of the table because they're legal, but they're just so far over the top. But every state has different regulations. So, for instance, in the Southeastern Conference, they have teams in Alabama and Georgia and Texas and Louisiana. Uh, you name it all the way through. And there's no one set of rules. And that's what the, 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 uh, the two commissioners are meeting with the senators for to try to get some national regulation. So it sounds like they're also reaching out to, I mean, do they reach out to Democratic senators or Republican senators? Are, Both I mean, sides. This, Both well, sides. I know, but this this is partly federal legislation versus states' rights, isn't it? Well, yeah, but I mean, it, it's that's what I'm saying. It doesn't make a difference whether which side it is. Money's money. It, it's, <laughs> it doesn't make a difference whether it's red or blue here. It's uh, The color's green. And it's what it, it comes down to this question. Is a college athlete an employee of the university? That's what this whole thing now comes down to. They're not because they don't get paid. They're employees of wherever they get their sponsorship or anything else they get paid from. See, I they're free agents. It's I I see that's my point. I I don't know what to do or that's, now. That's what's become of it. Now, of course, you know you know my motto is like get what you can while you can and get paid. But, I think that's their motto too. Yeah, I, I think, think so. But, motto. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. You summed it up really nicely, Michael Barr. <laughs> uh, that's Detroit talking. Anyway, uh, this final story. Obviously, this is a very serious story. The WNBA season has started, and Brittany Griner is not there, obviously, because she is still being held in a Russian jail. Uh, and she's been there. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. Since February, what happens here, Scarlett? Uh, I mean, yes, the U.S. is is trying its best to to get her to come back, but you're talking about uh, the most valuable player in the WNBA. What's going to happen to her? I mean, we know that on the outside, the U.S. will continue to back-channel and work on a way to free her, but... Obviously, everything's complicated by Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the ongoing war. But I think what's interesting here is the backdrop for why Brittany Griner even was in Russia. She might be the star of the WNBA, but she doesn't earn a whole lot because there's a salary cap. And so she has to spend time in Russia where she's done really well. She racked up four EuroLeague titles and gets paid better. And it's all about trying to monetize uh her on her talent because she can't get paid what she believes she's worth in the U.S. 
Yeah, the, the top salary, I believe, is around $228,000 for the WNBA. And their season runs from May to September, early October, almost like the baseball season. So in the off season, as Scarlett just said, they go to uh, Australia, they go to China, they go to France, they go to Russia, where they can sometimes triple their WNBA salary. And But obviously, uh, there comes with some risks, especially now uh, with Russia and Ukraine. Um, there have been some cash infusions. In February, Linda uh, Pizzuti-Henry, who's the wife of John Henry of Fenway Sports Group and the Red Sox, uh, they had a capital infusion to the WNBA of $75 million, which, uh, which really was a big, big boost. And they're hoping that... Uh, soon that the top salary can be close to a half a million dollars. And Kathy Engelbert now is uh, the commissioner who we've had on this show is going to issue some fines if some of these players stay over in their uh, overseas and don't show up on time for training camp. And uh, she also has threatened to say if, that some people may even be kicked off their teams if they don't show up in April when training camp is supposed to start. Now I should add, too, that... Brittany Griner made about a million dollars while she was playing in yeah. Russia. So you can yeah. see the the salary difference. The necessity. I, I wouldn't even say the appeal, the necessity, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, up next on the show, we speak with Bill Kostanjan, Chief Executive Officer of Churchill Downs, as we talk derby. Joining us is Bill. Welcome, Bill. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be here. All right. So as the CEO, do you get goosebumps like other people do, I mean, going into this week? I still do. I, I, uh, it's a busy week, but it's a labor of love. So I'm as excited as most of the fans. So yeah, I get goosebumps. I love doing what I do. And that's true for most of our team. This is, this is a lot of fun, a lot of work, but a lot of fun. And it always feels, it always feels good when it comes off successfully. I know the work for 2022 Derby probably started within an hour after the 2021 Derby. What's on your checklist going into the final few days before post time? things on the front side it's just making sure people can get in and out of the facility make sure we have all the people we need to 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 provide the service that our that our guests expect uh, making sure the horses are here that that they're being monitored that they're safe that they're ready to go uh, trying to control just about everything we can think of to control and trying not to worry about the thing we can't control which is always the weather we 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 run an outdoor event so a lot of our guests are undercover. They're in nice areas, high-end areas. But ultimately, this is an outdoor event, and the, and the horses run in the rain or the shine. And a lot of our guests buy general admission passes, so they're out there. Uh, and they take the weather as it comes. And uh, as much as over the years you try to learn to not be concerned about things you can't control, just prepare for whatever to happen, that's always the thing in the last 24 hours we talk about the most. But I guess that means also we've, we've gotten all the things we need to get done. There's going to be a different vibe this year because of COVID last year. I think your capacity was maxed out at around 50, 51,000. What are you expecting uh, for this derby, number 148? We're going to be back to, uh, to pre-COVID protocols and expectations. So I, I think a good number to think of for our event is around 150. If I had to take the under or the over, I'd, I'd take the over on that. <laughs> so we're expecting a full house with the with the enthusiasm and the excitement that that we've seen every year up through 2019 we had a bit of a disruption as the rest of the country did because of covid but i you know, being on the ground here living in this community like i do uh, i've never seen it more excited and more intense and more focused on the derby than than now so 
Um, I think we're going to be looking at big numbers, and I said on our earnings call a week or so ago, I think we're looking at setting all of the financial metrics. Uh, attendance at the end of the day is, is impacted a little bit because we always have a fair amount of walk-ups, people that make a game day decision of whether they want to come or not. And part of that calculus they run is what does the weather look like that day. So if it turns out to be strong weather, then then it'll be a gigantic crowd. If it if it turns out where we might have some rain, and the forecast in the Ohio River Valley is always always iffy right up to the last minute. But if it looks like we might have some rain, then then you see some people don't show up. But uh, I think we're looking at 150 minimum and, and maybe maybe more depending on good weather. Hey, Bill, my co-host Michael Barr uh, we had a little trouble getting out of the gate when the when the, when the bell sounded, <laughs> but he's 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 currently in last place, but he's in the race and he's joining us now. Michael, welcome aboard. Uh, say hi to Bill. Hi, how are you? I threw a shoe and then everything just went all to pieces here. My day, all this newfangled stuff. We just churned the butter. We were happy to have it. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's nice to meet you via via telephone here. Mike and I have been having fun so far. Oh, I, I've been hearing it. Thank thank you for your patience, and I know you're on a clock. But I do have uh, something on my mind about uh, Churchill Down. It's, it's the history of the track itself that always excited me. I mean, I, I think of so many of the Triple Crown winners when from Secretariat winning the first leg there, I'm affirmed. I can go on. The history itself of the track, can you tell us what that means and and how do you approach that for people coming to the track to say, hey, you see what we're all about? Sure. So this is Derby 148, and, and so the track started in 1875 and ran the first Derby in 1875, and it's been run continuously every single year since that time. So we're the longest continually run sporting events uh, in the United States, and our facility has changed and morphed over the time. Over time, a lot of times when people think of Churchill Downs, it, you know, it's it's a painted white. It, it's got this grand um, grand appearance. Uh, but but actually, if you see a picture from 1875, you realize how far the facility has come and how it's changed over time. Our most significant architectural feature is called the Twin Spires, and that actually was built in 1895. So mm. while there are just an incredible amount of traditions and incredible focus on everything we do that might modify our facility or modify the tradition, one of the things that have kept us fresh, I think, over time has been our willingness to work within these traditions, to find new ways, to morph with the customers, to morph with the time. I think that's actually part of the legacy of how we've gone 148 years and are at a place now where we're healthier than we've ever been. Super strong company, super strong results. Part of it is our, our willingness to change with our guests. But ultimately, we change anything about our facility, and we've changed a lot. We get a lot of feedback. You know, for example, one time in the last 10 years or so, we were repainting the track, and the the version of white paint that we've historically used was no longer available. This manufacturer was no longer making it. So we found something close that I couldn't tell the difference of, but it was slightly different because we couldn't find the exact same thing. And people noticed that and wrote us letters about that. Wow. So <laughs> if we change anything, it sparks conversation and it sparks debate. But being willing to change, being, being willing to modify traditions and make new traditions, change old traditions, that's something we have to think about because 
obviously we can't run the business the way we do now like we did in 1875. It's got to change with our guests. But we take that very, very seriously. And when you work at Churchill Downs, sometimes you feel like you work for a public institution. You feel like you you work for something that's owned by by the citizens and, and is not a private company. In our case, we're a publicly traded company. But you feel like it's a, a national treasure, and you have this higher obligation to, to to make sure you listen and reflect the views of the community. And at first, that sometimes can be a bit, you know, it can be a, a bit overwhelming because you hear so many voices. But learning to listen to those voices and categorize the different views are part of what ultimately one of the ways, one of the reasons the job is so much fun. Working here for everybody is so much fun. Bill Costanjan. Chief Executive Officer, Churchill Downs. If we were horses, Lynchy would be Secretariat, and I would be Mr. Ed. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for your patience. I appreciate it. Thanks very much. Happy Derby. Let's welcome Cynthia Marshall, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the Dallas Mavericks and is joining us from Dallas. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. I just got in from... uh... Phoenix early this morning, about three o'clock. So I got a little rest, and I'm ready for you. Man, that's <laughs> I, I appreciate that because I know if I got in at three o'clock, uh, y'all wouldn't be hearing from me until Saturday. So I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> Come on now, you know I had to join the crew this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Let, I'm going to start with the most obvious question out there, and everybody wants to know: You got an a high-profile owner. Mark Cuban, what is it like working for him? It is uh, an adventure a day. Uh, He is awesome. He keeps his promises. Uh, He promised me he'd uh, teach me the business of basketball and help others teach me the business of basketball when I took this job. Uh, And he has come through on that. Uh, He is, you know how they say uh, some people think they're the smartest person in the room? (laughs) Usually he is the smartest person in the room. Even even though he, he downplays it and he'll say, oh, no, no, everybody knows that. No, he's a pretty uh, smart, innovative guy. And what I love about him, he has a huge heart. Um, and he does a lot of stuff behind the scenes uh, to help people. And I love that because I'm, I'm all about compassion and helping people. And he's all about, you know, our team and the players. And, and he's about just making life better for uh, people. So it's great working for him. We have a, we have a great relationship. Uh, he's no nonsense. I like that a lot. I've had a lot of bosses in my life. And so I like that, you know, what you see is what you get. And, uh, he's very, very supportive and intuitive. Like he just kind of knows when I need to hear from him. So, so before cool. you, I like it. before you moved over to basketball and to, uh, Mark Cuban's enterprise, you, uh, had a 36 year career at AT&T. You also worked at Dow Chemical. So you've worked, uh, in different positions in corporate America. You didn't know much about basketball before you joined the Mavericks. Um, what did Mark Cuban teach you about basketball specifically that you really now have learned to appreciate about the sport and the overall sports industry? What, what, thank you for that question. What, what I've learned is, first of all, uh, I've learned the true business side of it, uh, what it takes to, uh, you know, to, to, to fill up a, an arena and the fact that there's a lot of things that go behind uh, the scenes to make sure we have 19,000 or 20,000 people uh, in our arena every time we open for a home game, which is 41 times, and that it's more than just you know, telling people to buy tickets, uh, that there's the whole branding aspect of it uh, that goes uh, with it. Uh, there's uh, 
there's some mechanics uh, that go with it. Uh, there's the right kind of staff that you have to have. Um, I've learned about uh, just the whole notion of you know how to how to support players and how to how to support them off the court and 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 what that means. Uh, I've learned about uh, partnerships. Uh, learned about uh, just sports analytics and the what you have to look at to uh, make sure that. Uh, you're, you're able to meet those goals. And I, I'm a basketball fan. I mean, so I, uh, I've watched basketball, I mean, just as long as I can remember. Uh, but I never knew about the business side and how to actually uh, lead and run a team and all of the things that go behind the scenes. And so he has exposed me to all of that and helped me figure out what to prioritize, what to kind of lead to my, leave to my people, and the things that I need to focus on uh, just about uh, every day. And so it's it's been interesting. I mean, I grew up in telecommunications or, you know, the communications and entertainment industry. Uh, but I didn't know a thing about running a basketball yeah. team. Yeah, I have so a quick... He's helped me with that. I have a quick follow-up question. You mentioned data and analytics. What's your favorite data point? Ooh, probably... Well, probably my favorite data point is our drop count and how many people actually show up to a game versus how many uh, tickets we've actually distributed and then going deeper in that to see who didn't show up and uh, trying to figure out the demographics and the reason maybe why people uh, don't show up uh, to games. Fortunately, our drop count is very, very high, uh, but I still like to know who didn't show up and why. So I like to uh, uh, dig into that. Uh, I like looking at our social media footprint, and uh, it continues to go up. Uh, and it's going up internationally, so I like to dig into that and figure out what will it take to get more people to follow our team. Hi, Sint. It's Mike Lynch. I'm up in Boston. Um, just hey, so Mike. Excited. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm so excited to talk to you. How's it going you. in Boston? I'm going to be well, there we're, we're, the 20th to yeah, the 22nd. We're, I have a niece graduating from Boston University. Oh, my dad went there. Good for you. That's uh, That'll yeah. be fun up here. Yep. And maybe you'll catch a Celtics awesome. playoff game. Who knows? <laughs> I got my own. I got my own playoff game. Yeah, you're right. Um, when you took over the uh, uh, CEO of the Mavericks, uh, for lack of a better word, the, the the allegations of the work environment were very toxic. Um, do you think your impact and your imprint in, is on the franchise right now? Yes, I think I, I think the culture that that I envisioned and that Mark envisioned, which you know he hired me to for you know to, to change the culture and also you know lead the business side of the team. Uh, I think the culture that we envisioned, a culture that said this would be a place where every voice matters and everybody belongs, uh, a culture uh, that is about respect uh, for people and treating people fairly. Uh, I think a culture that focuses on diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, that's a vision that we we had, that we set the standard for that in the NBA, and I think we've done that, and so I do think we've had an impact. I, I don't take sole credit for it, not by any means. Yes, I did put, lay out a vision and a set of values and a 100-day a plan, but it took a lot of us, a lot of us uh, to execute on it, and so it is a uh, it is a new culture. It's a new day. We are not perfect. We still have just, you know, normal workplace stuff that goes on. Uh, but it is not a toxic uh, environment. It is not the culture that was talked about in that Sports Illustrated article four years ago. I love calling you sent. This this is great. I love it. It's like it's like <laughs> on this Kentucky Derby weekend. I feel like I'm throwing back a bunch of mint juleps talking to you. <laughs> so, sent. listen. Yeah. <laughs> 
You broke a ceiling, and uh, great. You were the first African-American woman to hold the CEO role for any NBA team. Take us through that and what that experience was like. Well, first of all, uh, and, and I've been first many times in my life, and I didn't know I was first, and that's, that's usually what happens when you're first. You don't know you're first. Uh, but usually what happens is, uh, and, and in this case with Mark, he wasn't trying to make history. He was just trying to make a difference for his employees. And so he asked me to do a job that I prayed about and thought I was actually equipped to do and said yes and laid out a plan based on my 36 years at AT&T and what I knew about uh, leading organizations and transforming cultures. And so when uh, someone in, in a Today Show interview asked me how was it being first, and I said, you got to be kidding. And at that time, it was 2019. I said, there's no way I'm first in anything uh, in 2019. And he goes, no, you're first. And I said, okay, well, actually, that's, that's kind of sad, but I guess just better make sure I'm not the last. And that's usually what it does for me. Uh, it makes me just want to really do a great job so that there will be no hesitation on anybody's part if they pick somebody who looks like me to do a big job. That, in fact, they will want uh, somebody who looks like me to do a great job. And then I have to make sure I do a great job so the people coming behind me can can want to do it because sometimes, especially in some of our communities, uh, you need to see it and you need to see what's possible. So I, I focus a lot on that. And then I focus on the pipeline. Cause I, if, if I'm the first, I don't want to be the last. So I want to make sure I'm doing my part to develop people coming up behind me. So, you know, I just have a job to do. So being first is just like, okay, I, got, I better do a great job. I, but it's not like I think I have to prove something every day already. I mean, somebody selected me for the job, so clearly I, I bring something to the party. So I don't, I don't focus on it too much. Well, thank you for answering that. And, and that article um, that Mike Lynch was referring to was from 2018, and we know that Mavericks uh, won the 2022 Inclusion Leadership Award uh, given by the NBA. It's the second straight time the team has actually won the award. 2020 and 2021 were combined due to COVID. That's a pretty remarkable turnaround if you think um, from 2018 to 2021, you turned around the culture, got rid of the toxicity, and turned this team into something that was worthy of inclusion leadership. Can you talk us through a little bit about how you did that? I mean, what was the first thing you knew you had to do going into this organization to, to fix things? Okay, thank you for bringing that up because we're I, I'm so proud of my team and we're pretty happy about uh, winning that award, you know, twice uh, in a row. Uh, the, the first thing really that I did was lay out a vision that said we would set the global standard in the NBA for diversity and inclusion. And the reason I focused on that, even as the CEO of the team, is because I believe in the business case. I truly believe, and I've experienced it, that when you have a diverse group of people around the table, when you have diverse organization, when you have an inclusive environment, it impacts the bottom line. Your business results are better. You make better decisions. Uh, you are more insightful with your customers. You can win the war for talent. I mean, just the whole business case. I've lived it, and it's true. And so that's why I laid that out uh, as a vision and explained that to our employees. Uh, then we laid out a set of values that spells crafts, character, respect, authenticity, which is big in this space, fairness, teamwork, and safety. But we also laid out a diversity, equity, and inclusion agenda about the spells crafts, and it was about our customers wanting to make sure we served them the way they needed to be served and that we had a diverse group of customers. Uh, our reputation as a great place uh, to work for everybody. 
uh, an agenda for women. So we laid out an express agenda to educate, empower, encourage, and elevate women. Uh, family, uh, just, you know, bringing home, community, the workplace, all uh, together. And then talent, of course, we wanted to really focus on our people and making sure we had, you know, women coming up in leadership and, and, and just everyone coming up. And then our, our suppliers and sponsors, like where are our purchasing dollars going? Are we supporting minority women, disabled veteran-owned businesses? What kind of sponsors do we have? Are we giving everybody opportunity? So we laid out an expressed diversity and inclusion agenda from day one. We put employee resource groups in place so people would have those affinity groups to really work with and have allies in those groups. Uh, We focused a lot on workforce demographics. You know, one of the first things I did was diversify that leadership team that we went from not having any women or people of color in permanent leadership positions to 50% women and and 50% uh, people of color. So a very diverse uh, team around my table, but around uh, uh, most of the other tables. And then we have, you know, we stepped out into the community and put together an external advisory council that looks like America. And so these are, you know, about 30 external people, you know, just helping to advise us. Um, and, you know, kind of we use them as a, a sounding board. And then uh, we put together a robust community program. And then, of course, in 2020, we put together our MAF Take Action uh, Social Justice Program. So that's kind of like how the things that we did that got us win the uh, Inclusion Leadership Award, which, of course, we did not have our sights set on winning any kind of award. It was just we wanted to set the standard and we wanted to create a great place to work for everybody. So those are the kind of things we did. Vision Values business resource groups, workforce demographics, community conversation series, community outreach, and we also have an inclusion council internally. So a group of about 30 employees that uh, focus on the culture uh, and making sure we have a a place that's inclusive. So a quick follow-up on on that idea that you uh, turn senior leadership into 50% women, 50% people of color. Did you replace staff or did you broaden and expand the staff? Both. So I brought I brought in two people, two leaders with me, uh, because of course, going into a new place like that, especially under those circumstances, I, I figured I needed a, a chief human resources officer and a chief compliance officer. And I brought them in with me because clearly there was a need to focus on that. And then uh, we did have to uh, move some people on. So some, some people left, some people retired. And then uh, we brought in, uh, we promoted some people. Uh, we had a gr- we did just have great people at the Mavs, and we already had some great people uh, in the organization uh, who were either ready or on the path to being ready to uh, to sit in leadership positions. Uh, so it was a mix of people I brought in, people I hired because we actually I interviewed some folks for different jobs, and then uh, uh, promoting from within. So a combination, which I think is, is the best way to do it. Sint, let me ask you, when, when you're interviewing a potential employee, what, do you, what are you looking for? Oh, that's a great question. I, uh, I'm looking for character, number one. Uh, so I ask, them, I, I ask them questions about their values, about uh, uh, integrity and the role that that's played in their life. Uh, if, you know, if they've been in a position where they've had to make a decision, uh, that was a hard decision. Uh, maybe somebody was asking them to do one thing, but they knew what the right thing to do was. So I actually asked questions uh, around that. Uh, obviously, you know, the, the obvious is, of course, I'm looking for, you know, a skill set based on the job that I'm, you know, that I'm interviewing them uh, for. 
I look for their ability to lead, and I'm particularly focused on kind of you know leaders at this point. Um, I look for their ability to lead, so I want I want examples of, of things that they've dealt with, uh, the, the the results, great results they've achieved, but also the hard decisions they've had to make uh, around uh, people. Uh, that's important, and then I I, I look for. Uh, it, it, within their experience, I look to see kind of where they have worked, and I ask them questions around uh, our values and around you know diversity, equity, and inclusion, and you know have they worked with uh, a, a, a diverse group of people before, and what does that look like for them? What does that feel like? If they haven't, can they do it? So try to get a sense for that, and then of course I go deep on the subject matter. Speaking of employees, so you... The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com. Get this guy named Luka Doncic. And everybody yeah. says on the Mavs, hell yeah. Well, can I say a hell yeah on this show? Well, I just did. And, anyway. And, you know, Luca came in 2018, okay? Like oh. right after I came. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, I mean, you, you, you've got this, this guy, a.k.a. super dude, who is not only great on the court, but he is also a great marketing uh, perspective for the team. Can you take us through that when you have a guy like this? Well, he's just incredible. As as our head coach, uh, Jason Kidd, has said, often he is a generational talent. And he is amazing. Uh, and he's amazing on the court, but he's also amazing off the court because I get to interact with the players a lot, too, on the community uh, side as well. And so he, he is doing great things back in his in, in Slovenia, uh, but also doing things here for kids and all that. So, in fact, he's up right now for the NBA's Community Assist Award. So crossing our fingers on that. But he, he works very hard. I mean, obviously, you know, we're in the playoffs right now. And he's, uh, he's leading the way. He is leading the way. And it's, it's all coming together. It's all coming together. But he is he's amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the only way I can describe it. I mean, I watch him sometime and my mouth is just open. <laughs> and we have, I mean, we have an amazing team. I mean, obviously, he has other people around him. But uh, he, makes, he makes them better, too. He's just uh, he's a he's a great great player great player, and he's so competitive. I mean, he's so competitive, which I love that because I'm competitive too. He's so competitive. Since somewhere along the line, back around Bird, Magic, Jordan, Kobe, uh, the NBA, the, the marketing efforts were towards individual stars as opposed to teams. Now I know you're always a team first guy, but this has to be a marketing dream to have someone like Luca. Well, yeah, I'll be of, of, of course. I mean. So- <laughs> Sometimes we laugh with our ticket salespeople and say, now, you know what? He, he has made the job much easier. Yes, it's, you know, it's a hard job, you know, just selling in general. But he has made it easy. People want to come to our games. And people want to be associated with the Dallas Mavericks. And, and that was part of our vision, just even globally. We want people connected to our team. And, and Luca has done that. I mean, having Luca has uh, put us so much further ahead around just our, um, our brand awareness. 
and our social media footprint and people wanting to be associated with us. I mean, even, even our merchandising, I mean, just his jersey sales alone, people want to be associated with the Mavs. And clearly, clearly, uh, he is a huge, huge part of that. So it's, it's a dream to have somebody like that. It really is. <laughs> it really is. And we just got blessed. I mean, we went from having Dirk to having Luca. And again, I, we're, and you're right, we're big on teams. So we have a lot of great players around him. But clearly, he is uh, the leader of the team. And we got two in a row. So lucky us. That's right. You had Dirk. I forget. My, oh, my. see, I'm a Detroit Pistons fan. We're we're in a rebuilding stage. Okay, <laughs> yeah, well, we're gonna we, get we, there. We've been there before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We've been there. It's okay. It's okay. Sent Marshall. It's okay. Oh my goodness! What what a fun time. CEO of the Dallas Mavericks. And I, I tell you, you you have sparked Scarlett's interest uh, in the NBA because I, I yeah. see it now, the excitement yeah. on her face. Well, a lot of my interest Yay, is because Scarlett. of television, too. I mean, um, I know that you don't watch uh, Winning Time, Scent, but I'm sure that you're aware of the impact uh, a dramatized TV show can have on a team and the branding of the team. Years later, when HBO does a dramatization of the Dallas Mavericks in the 2018 to 2020 years, who do you want to play you? Oh, you know, it's interesting because someone recently uh, said they wanted to make a movie just about my life. And so my niece and my children have been trying to figure out who should play me. And I said, well, Viola Davis. And they said, yes, we like that. Uh, but, then they, but, but then they had a long laundry list of people, but it has to be somebody with lots of energy, probably a big smile, but also can, you know, handle their business and handle the hard stuff when they need to. No, it's Viola Davis, because that's the first person I thought of if someone was to to play you, Viola Davis. That's it. Yes, yes, I love her. <laughs> we'll get in touch with some writers right now. Yes, let, them, let, let them know right now because uh, some people want to do a story of my life, which I think is hilarious. Um, and then, of course, I have a book coming out, so everybody's talking about, okay, one day we got to make a movie. I said, okay. When is that well, book coming out? Yeah, wait, wait, yeah. We, it yeah. is coming out in September. All right. Not in September. It's about my cancer journey because, ah. well, it's, it ended up being much more uh, than my cancer journey because the publishers decided that they needed to tell a few life stories uh, to show why I was equipped to handle mm. uh, a stage three uh, cancer diagnosis. Oh, and that it was actually a pretty bad situation, but that was 11 years ago, and I'm blessed and I'm still here. But the name of my book is You've Been Chosen, Thriving Through the Unexpected. Uh, and people have been telling me for about 10 years to take my cancer journal because I had a public uh, posting every uh, round of chemo. And they say you got to turn it into a book because people ask for it all the time. And it's really just trying to help, first of all, people who are going through chemotherapy and going through a cancer battle just to kind of read the good, the bad, the great and the ugly mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. to see that what they're going through is is real. But it's also a book about just, you know, serving others, about how you are. Uh, we're all uniquely equipped for the challenges that we face. And so everything uh, we go through in our lives, it all leads to a certain point where you have to draw upon all of that and that we really can handle it. I mean, it's just like taking this job with Mark Cuban. I just somehow 
was uniquely qualified. I was chosen kind of to do that. And then, uh, you know, we're all chosen for a unique story and, and, and a purpose. And, yes, bad things will happen, uh, but life isn't always about what happens, but sometimes it's more about how we respond to what happens. Mm-hmm. And so this tells the story of how the village just came around me, not just when I had cancer, but actually my whole life, you know, growing up in a public housing project and facing a lot of adversity. So it talks about that, which I am sure equipped me to kind of deal uh, with what I dealt with. Uh, and it really is about how we serve each other, how we serve each other, how we share our burdens together, uh, how um, our faith, how we have to rely on our faith uh, and each other uh, to get through some of the, the obstacles. So I hope people will buy it and be inspired. We'll I can't believe I finally wrote it. I mean, I was I was convinced. People kept saying, you have to write it. And so I finally, I wrote it on an airplane in 2019, <laughs> all of my airplane trips. And so it's going to come out. So I hope you'll get it. Well, sent that's what we call in our business burying the lead because that we we got to have you back on the show to talk about this book. Uh, it's like mark it in your calendar, September. Uh, yeah, in September you got to come on back. Uh, wow, I'll come back. I'll come back. Sent Marshall, you are so you are so kind. CEO of the Dallas Mavericks. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. God bless. Bye bye. Sent that was such a treat. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Let me know if y'all need anything else. Yep. We'll talk to you in September. September. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. All right. I'll talk to you in September. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, (laughs) I had no idea that she had a book that was coming out in September. And and it floored me because I can't wait to read this book. As being a cancer survivor, stage three cancer? I know. My goodness. that That's something else. She totally buried the lead. And- you know, we have her biography in front of us. It's got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven paragraphs. It needs to be like 20 paragraphs long because this woman has done so much and has accomplished so much. That you don't really get a, a full sense of, of her accomplishments um, or, or just what she's gone through, what she sees and what she brings to an organization without having a conversation with her. You know, I think that sort of personifies who she is, that she doesn't, she's not very boastful of a career that is just so impressive. I read the same thing. I mean, first uh, uh, African-American cheerleader at Cal Berkeley um, and what she did at AT&T. Just remarkable. And uh, now she's, she's come into this environment, you know, a men's male-oriented, uh, dominated mm-hmm. environment and uh, changed the culture and won the award two years in a row back-to-back. Um, you know, she's be as proud of that as if the Mavericks won the NBA championship. You know, it's the best part of the job when we talk to people who blow you away with with what they do, their outlook, and their approach to things. I mean, she stepped into, I mean, you called it a toxic culture. It, it felt like a landmine the way that Dallas Mavericks were when, when she was brought mm-hmm. in. And she turned it around. And I'm sure Mark Cuban is not an easy guy to work with, but she's infatuated with the guy. He said he let... He, he taught her about basketball, but let her be sent mm-hmm. and, 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 and just do her work that has been so successful in her past. And she has some great, uh, you know, some great quotes. I love the one she said at the end. It's not what happens, but it's how you respond to what happens. Mm-hmm. Which Always. I thought was, was really, really something. And what she looks for when she interviews a, a potential employee. Um, you know, character seems to be the central theme that ran through this conversation. I know. That that, that gave me a lot to think about, too. Yeah. 
My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since a kid. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. Well, 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 well. Guess what time it is. Guess what time it is. I'm groaning inwardly. (laughs) It is time for the number of the week. And let's go back to an old favorite that I love and haven't done it in a while. What sport first? Uh, Well, you know what? It's it's about the Tampa Bay Rays co-owner. Okay. And uh, so nominally about baseball. Nominally. Uh, nominally, it's he just sold his waterfront Miami <laughs> Beach home. It's an off-market transaction. Uh, it off-market was, transaction. Yes, that Beautiful. puts a twist on it. Uh, it's a seven-bedroom, roughly eighty-five hundred square foot house. It's one of the most expensive to sell in the Sunset Islands. Oh my! It's a group of four man-made islands in Biscayne Bay. Oh. <laughs> Now that I've sold you all on it, how much did he sell it for? I'm going to say $19 million. Lindsay? I'm going to go north of that because I believe Tom Brady rented um, Derek Jeter's home in Tampa. And that was like $25 million when, when he sold it. So I'm going to go north of that and go just under the radar, $29 million. Wow. Well, Tampa Bay Rays co-owner Randy Frankel sold his waterfront Miami Beach home for $31.5 million. Lynchy. Wow. Lynchy again. He bought it uh, at the time for $14.41 million. So he made a little pretty penny off of it. Yeah, nice flip. Yeah. Did he even live there? Well, yeah, I think he did. I think he, you know, he had to. Maybe, maybe not. You know, well, that's true. But it's well, it was newly built, so no, he had to. Well, no, you're right. He doesn't necessarily. A lot of these guys. Well, no, these guys. A lot of wealthy people who can buy multiple homes don't actually spend that much time in them. That's true. Which reminds me, I got. I don't know that they put on Airbnb, but you know. They're not spending time in them. I gotta buy some Mister Clean to clean my bathroom. That's how you just reminded me. Of That's that. the thought that triggered that. It did because it's like, yeah, I live here. I gotta clean this place up. <laughs> but thirty-one point five mil and Lynchy, as usual, you're under. So you're on stage, man. Uh, official Price is Right rules. Uh, washer dryer and uh, off-market transaction means he saved a lot in uh, broker fees. Oh yeah, six oh, percent yeah. of that. See, it's I'm I'm too too much of a silly goose to try to do off market. I couldn't do it. Oh yeah, I mean, that's a whole different ball game. Yeah, I'd, I'd be like, you know, well, <laughs> what you all want in this house? <laughs> uh, this is the Bloomberg Business of Sports Show. Thank you, Lanchi. You are just so good. We're here each and every week at the same time. Plus, online, wherever you get your podcasts, you can catch those Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I'm Mike LaBar on Twitter, at Big Bar Sports. I've just learned to accept that Lynchy will win this weekend and week out. I'm Scarlett Foo on Twitter, at Scarlett Foo. When are you ever going to learn to let me go first, Scarlett? When are you going I've, to You learn? know what? While he was singing the little Jeopardy <laughs> tune, I was waiting patiently, and I realized that 
unless someone prodded you into it, it was never going to happen. <laughs> oh, that. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, Miss, <clears throat> Mr. Michael Barr. Mr. Host has to be like, all right, Lynchy, go. Yeah, yeah. I believe the rule is if you're if you're the winner the week before, you get to go second. Oh, is that the rule? Sort of like the Army Navy game. If you win, you get to sing your school's alma mater song. Second. Oh my gosh. Okay, oh, yeah. I'm doomed. Yeah, this is like a here. vicious cycle. <laughs> well, you can find me uh, gloating at Lynchy WCVB. <laughs> He's the one that's, yeah, you'll find him there. Thanks for joining us. Tune in again next week for the latest on the stories moving big money in the world of sports. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.